then they might start doing stuff like, you know, going on Twitter and confessing to working for a defense contractor. <laughs> I was wondering if that's where we were going. Nice. nice. Instead yeah, of quitting yeah. their job. Their right? asses. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, quit. right? Quit. Quit your You don't have job. to be doing this. episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Professor Nathan Dufour. Hey, Nathan, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Today, um, we will be discussing uh, Nathan's new book, Solidarity and Conflict, A Democratic Theory, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Nathan is currently an assistant professor at the University of Hartford, and their work occupies the intersections of social and political philosophy, Frankfurt School critical theory, and feminist thought. They published on Adorno and Horkheimer's work in international law, and perhaps most importantly, I have dubbed them one of the few Twitter accounts that never misses, so put that on your CV, please. Absolute facts. Before handing it over to Nathan, I would like to briefly gloss a couple of the, the main ideas in Solidarity and Conflict, and this is no way exhaustive, and that's what I hope the conversation will be. But what I take to be Nathan's central intervention is to offer an account of solidarity that is principally political. Now, first blush, this might seem as if this required no argument. After all, when most of us talk about solidarity, we think we are making a political statement. However, it is a testament to Nathan's work to show that much of the philosophical literature on solidarity offers a moral justification for solidarity rather than a political description. Solidarity is something we, who are privileged, owe to the dominated. It is a duty we have as good people. It is a gift we bestow upon those unfortunate others. So I should not buy this, should not say that, should drag my racist uncle at Thanksgiving, should post a black square as my profile pic, all in the name of hashtag solidarity. Now, I'm being a little bit glib here, but there are good political explanations for why people would think that this is a political form of solidarity. But what Nathan shows is that accounts that foreground the moral dimensions of solidarity tend to efface the democratic aspect. Moral justifications tend to take conflict as a problem to be solved and consensus as a goal to be achieved. Instead, we should learn how to defer to the judgments of those we deem oppressed. On Nathan's account, however, the focus on moralism does not capture, quote, that solidarity is something that people who are oppressed do with each other by building social groups and organizations, and that these people have abiding disagreements about what ought to be done and why, end quote. Solidarity is not a gift offered to the oppressed, but is what the oppressed must do between themselves. Moreover, solidarity is not antithetical to conflict, given that the oppressed will not only disagree about tactics, but long-term strategies. A viable lived practice of solidarity can neither avoid nor suppress conflict, and for that reason, we should not assume that the presence of conflict means the absence of solidarity. We do live in a moment where there is an increasing worry that solidarity groups on the left are increasingly inhospitable to disagreement in the name of something called wokeness. This, ironically, leads to these groups to being conflict-ridden and dysfunctional. Nathan's point seems to be that conflictual solidarity is a necessary condition of a vibrant democratic life. Crucially, they do not argue that all and any conflict is productive of a freer and less dominating society. It is because the dominated are in solidarity that they can withstand conflict. So the debate me bros, the devil's advocates, the self-proclaimed anti-woke media personalities, and the I'm just asking questions crowd are not necessarily contributing to a less dominating social life, even as they help make it more conflict-ridden. Some minimum of social trust and practical engagement must attend conflict for it to be productive. 
They make this point well with the example of a white supremacist joining a labor union. The white supremacists would have to modify their goals and tactics even if their beliefs remain the same if the collective action of solidarity is to be successful. Solidarity is rife with difficult choices and boundary setting on the way to the goal of what Nathan calls infinite non-exclusion. But for Nathan, this hard work is valuable given that solidarity can prefigure or give us a glimpse of an alternate mode of social life. But to get there, we have to begin from the question of why the, the oppressed engage in solidarity in the first place, rather than the moral injunction to be in solidarity with the oppressed. And with that, I would like to turn it over to Nathan and invite you to say more about the book. To start, why did you want to investigate the role of conflict in solidarity? Well, thank you for that really excellent uh, summary, first of all. I, you know, I started getting interested in this um, question of conflict and solidarity when I started noticing, I was reading a lot of work on solidarity and I was writing about it, and I started noticing that everyone just took it for granted that somehow like solidarity organizations knew what to do. And when I thought about that depiction and my own experience in these organizations, I was just like, that is so alien. I like, I've never participated in any kind of political solidarity group where everyone agreed with each other or even liked each other very much necessarily. <laughs> um, and so reading all these depictions, I was just like, there has got to be a better way of thinking about this. Um, and at the time I was thinking about it as this sort of democratic integrative thing from like previous work I did on the EU and like the way that solidarity gets talked about there. And I was just like, yeah, we've got to find a better way of thinking about what people are doing when they're in solidarity with each other than just like collective action or like falling in love with each other somehow. Because neither of those seem to really capture at least my experience. And I think if you read accounts of it, the experiences of basically anyone who participates in these kinds of groups. Yeah, I think that's really great. Uh, what I thought was really important, what you were doing in the book, is that you offer a distinctly, almost principally, non-romantic account of solidarity. So I love the moment where you say, in a perfect world, there would not be solidarity. In a perfect world, there would not be democracy. Why? Yeah. Because there would be no conflict. There would be no reason to adjudicate this. Why do I think that that's a really important point that, that you made is because I think sometimes you talk about solidarity as if it's, you know, this wonderful thing. We want a world filled with solidarity, which means whatever solidarity is, that's the perfect world in situated in the imperfect world. But what you're saying is that we have solidarity because you use the language you use, we're living in the wreckage of society. And if that is true, we should not expect that solidarity is this place where we prefigure the, the moment where no disagreements happen, where we're all somehow magically on the same page, and there are no hard decisions to be made about decisions, long-term strategies, etc. And so sometimes it seems like people talk about solidarity as if all of that is external imperfections, like you know, that you'll know, mar the platonic form of solidarity, rather than something that makes up the concept itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that people think we need to get rid of it because they see only the destructive forces of those kinds of things. When you look at a conflict, people see how you don't like pay attention to conflicts that don't lead to dissolution or like political ineffectivity or like bad tactical choices. That's all people see when they think about conflict. You don't look at a conflict and think, okay, how were the people involved in this disagreement changed? Like, what did this do for them? How did this make a different way of living possible for these people? Even though conflict is transformative, right? And, and, of course, that means it's destructive. <laughs> Sometimes. That's a transformation. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is, right? And in the book, I don't shy away from those either, right? I ruminate on lots of organizations that have had conflicts, just totally break them apart. But it's also a way that we become the kinds of things we are. And we can be made better and we can create new ways of living together. But not so long as we just like let other people do their own thing. Mm -hmm. um, like we actually have to do the hard work of addressing each other in ways that are, you know, not always like, hey, you're really nice to me and I like that. <laughs> 
So I wanted to ask, you know, to uh, how it is maybe for you to say a little more about how it is you disentangle solidarity from other things it gets really confused with, because I think this is a really important project. And I, I guess so it might be useful to then ask, how is solidarity different in on your conception than like the kind of cooperation that people that are part of the ruling class like engage in as they attempt to you know produce and reproduce their their domination how is the kind of solidarity amongst oppressed people which you single out as i, I think for special as, as a, the kind of paradigmatic case of solidarity how is it different than like the solidarity in January 6th, you know, or solidarity amongst white supremacists. And there, I think it might be, it might be helpful to, for the listeners, especially to see just how it is. Cause I think it's very adept how you do it, like how you disentangle these various confusions. Yeah. I mean, that was a confusion I introduced, right? I take full credit for introducing it because no one, to my knowledge, Almost no one in the literature on solidarity, I won't say exactly no one, but no one I have found takes people organizing for domination together to be a paradigmatic case of solidarity. Mm. Um, and I do, right? Yeah. They they are absolutely in solidarity together. You go on a landlord forum <laughs> and, oh, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you watch solidarity work. These yeah. people are dedicated to helping each other hurt the worst off people alive. Homeowners associations too. Yes, exactly. Like it is not hard to find examples of these people working together in a collective fashion for a goal to transform the world after their own wishes. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I wanted to disentangle isn't so much like that, that isn't solidarity, I actually wanted to point out that is solidarity. Mm. That is part of what makes it so difficult to actually achieve social, political, legal, economic transformation. Mm -hmm. It's not just that we're facing like a structure that is resistant. We are facing people that are working together to make it resistant, right? And, Mm -hmm. And so it is a structure, yeah. It's also an organized group of people who have names and addresses. And the way I wanted to disentangle it instead is to say, okay, which of these is the thing we ought to be doing? And how can we get an account of which one of these we should participate in that doesn't require you to accept a ton of like backward moral baggage, right? How can I get you to accept that you should be in solidarity with the oppressed without also convincing you of uh, virtue ethics. <laughs> um, because like that just seems like too much. Um, so what I, what I was interested in trying to do is to say, all right, look, if you have democratic commitments, mm. you should participate in one of these forms of solidarity rather than the other, because one of them is trying to build a democratic world and the other is trying to destroy it. Right. And so it's a hypothetical imperative not a categorical one, because I don't really take it as my goal to convince anyone to be in solidarity. It was my goal, I think, to convince people one of these is worth modeling ourselves after and one of them isn't. And so I used this sense of like how they function in a democratic society in order to make that kind of distinction. Yeah, it's one of like the fascinating things that you like pull on. The book is so good for so many reasons, but one of them is, as like Will said in his introduction, is pointing out that, you know, you start like citing other people on what solidarity means. And like just again and again, the reference I'm reading it, just like, what? That can't be right. <laughs> this is a wild, like oversight and underdeveloped aspect of the, the literature. And it's crucial for like you situate your project as like a contribution to like a democratic political theory or like a political theory of democracy where, you know, we've got plenty of theorization about freedom and equality. But what about this third thing, which is non-enforceable in an important way, but which seems to make everything go right. Mm -hmm. Nothing gets off the ground without this. And so I don't know. I was curious if you could speak a little bit more about like, yeah, what about the non coercible character the non-legally mandated like this is part of why it's democratic on your on your story because there's like a voluntary nature to it and because of the conflictuality that's sort of built into it um and maybe you could help like show your like relation to but distance from someone like Chantal Mouffe's like theory of agonism here yeah sure so 
one of the things that I was trying to figure out is why no one has written politically on solidarity, right? Even though it's like, it it's huge. It looms large over the history of liberalism, over the history of like modern European democracies. Um, like it's considered one of the principles of the EU. <laughs> like, so why aren't we doing more thinking about this? Like, yeah. it's actually really strange that not a lot of people have been. And to the extent that people think about it politically anyway, I took the model of that to be like the Habermas style way of thinking about it, where it's like, okay, well, solidarity is just like when we're all properly integrated into a well-functioning political unit, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're going to strip it of all that social stuff. We're going to strip it of all the emotive and intersubjective elements. And we're going to say, okay, solidarity is when stuff works. Oh, cool. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's like, well, thanks, Durkheim. Like, you really cleared that up. Like, that doesn't solve any of these no. Like, it solves nothing, right? Um, and so... I was looking and I was like, okay, so we have these like high concept structural ways of thinking about solidarity. That is not, I don't think, what most people mean when they think of solidarity. And I don't think it's what solidarity can do for us, right? Mm -hmm. And so the thing I think that solidarity can do for us, like well said, is that it helps us build societies and like prefigure a world that we can live in right? That we can actually exist in. Like, I think of solidarity as a way of making ourselves possible in a lot of senses, mm -hmm. right? And so the conflict that I'm interested in there, it is in some way related to the kind of agonism that MOVE is interested in, right? To say, yeah, we have an irreducible pluralism, right? Just like, I'll take that on board at base. I don't, know where it comes from. Unlike all of these like enlightenment thinkers, I don't know where the kind of conflicts we're in all the time come from. I'm not going to say it's human nature, that but I am going to timber. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but I it I don't think it's going to go away, right? And in some ways that's why we can't have a utopian society. It's like, well, we have this history of conflict. And so I just take that on board. And it's like, okay, if we are irreducibly plural and we're trying to organize ourselves politically, we simply have to take on board that we are going to have disagreements about things that really matter and the stakes of which are really high. And by really high, I mean, for some people, the stakes of conflicts will be life or death. What kinds of choices an organization or a group of people makes, some people will spend the rest of their lives in prison for, right? Like, I don't mean to be flippant about, like, conflict when I, like, make jokes about fighting with each other. It's like, no, like, the stakes of this are really, really high. And that makes it all the more important that we pay really close attention to it. <laughs> yeah. So what I found really, you know, powerful or striking in your book is that, you know, you're paying attention to conflict, but, you know, it's not even with you know, the kind of utopian aim of finally getting rid of conflict. In fact, it seems you want to say something like there ha there will always be necessarily, but also you know we should want there to be some minimum of conflict in in you know solidarity groups because that keeps open you know the processes of of democratic participation, you know so unless you are one of those people who knows what the world should look like, you're going to actually have to allow for the fact that there should be you know a, some minimum of democracy that allows people to disagree on what it is that we're trying to do and how we're trying to get there. But I also thought what was really important is you're offering a concept of solidarity, really like your phrase here, that is closer to the lived practice of what solidarity is. And I think idealizing solidarity, you know, what, what's harmful is not just it doesn't capture real life, but it also harms our memory of what people were doing when they engaged in solidarity. I sometimes find this when some, I, I sometimes hear people talk about black-led efforts like the civil rights movement or something like that, as 
if you know, somehow they were all on the same page. There were no disagreements. But insofar as there were disagreements and the ones who were disagreeing, they were the bad ones. And they were making right. that organization mm. dysfunctional. And, and I thank just God that cooler that's heads a, prevailed and we found consensus, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, so the, obviously the very U.S.-centered example of this is, you know, MLK was obviously the good one. Malcolm X was the bad one introducing dissensus. And I think, you know, a lot of people still reflexively, they think that because they don't like black nationalism or whatever have you. But it's as if they're, ca they're missing something that's integral to political life that you think we should hold on to. Not, you know, and I want to be very clear, maybe this is my question, but you're not romanticizing conflict either. You're not saying, okay, now that I've read this book, let me go to my next year labor organizing meeting and let's just fuck it up. You know, <laughs> let me just like, you know, say whatever's on my mind and you know, make sure there's a maximum of conflict so that there, we can see if we're truly in solidarity with one another. That's not what you're saying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be like, I think this idea of conflict, it does get read as this kind of like, irrational quarrelsomeness, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And that does such a disservice to what conflict can produce, right? So like, I think the example of looking back on movements of the past and saying like, oh, well, we have like the moral valence of this sorted. We know the good ones because they brought people together and they did like kumbaya shit, right? And we know the bad ones because they caused problems. And the fact of the matter is, Solidarity groups are going to cause problems. <laughs> like, that's their purpose. That's what they're <laughs> trying to do. And so when they do it, they're actually being really effective, right? Mm. And, and so, like, we get this picture, like, from the outside, we worry about the conflict that they cause with, like, the society itself. But then we also worry about the conflict internally, right? You go to the labor meeting and you just start, like, saying, you know, Dave, you're an asshole. I hate you. Definitely a hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the Dave, not a real person. Right. But you know who that, you are, Dave. <laughs> Get him. <laughs> that is like not the kind of conflict that I mean. And I definitely think that the kind of like moof picture of agonism sometimes lends itself toward that, right? Mm. If you can't find a conflict, like if you don't have a conflict, you've got to find one because that's the engine <laughs> of politics. Right. That's yes. where democracy yeah. is going to mm -hmm. come from, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's like, well, no. The fact of the matter is, is there's actually probably a lot of conflict embedded in the union itself already that mm. just hasn't been actually processed and worked through. And this is the case in a lot of solidarity organizations. And a lot of it, I think, happens around um, principally like membership questions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so like, I think there's an interesting kind of parallel there when we think about democratic societies and who is a member and who is not and who ought to be and who ought not to be. That's a principal conflict of a solidarity group. It's not clear to me that that kind of thing could ever really be solved. Yeah, in this regard, like you point out at one point that there's a, it would be a mistake to think that the conflict arises within solidarity groups only at the level or principally at the level of like instrumental rationality, right? As though like there is, we can presume broad agreement about the ends of whatever the goal of the organization is for, mm -hmm. but then we have disagreements just about tactics here and there. But you want to insist that like, no, even like these fundamental basic questions of like, you know, what is the aim? What is the purpose? What are we after? Like that's already conflictual and these sorts of groups have to, navigate this in order to become effective i mean like what's what's really nice right and i like how much you drag a lot of people in this book actually i like how much you drag habermas <laughs> I, I was impressed by the levels of the dragon like sophisticated dragon i don't want to give our, our listeners a wrong impression charitable yeah. dragging no, like, well-sided yeah. dragging yeah our favorite dragging. thing <laughs> high level sophisticated dragging is like maybe the watchword of the podcast um <laughs> yes but yeah but yeah like you you give like a habermas a pretty hard time here i think for good reason right because the mistake is to think that conflict is like a problem to be overcome in the form of like communicative self-transparency or, you know, consensus formation. When, like, the conflict can remain irreducible. The question is about, like, really effective 
collectivity, which requires a degree of organization that doesn't presuppose that kind of consensus at all, actually. And I just think that's really interesting, right? Like you, you're pointing out that conflict is built into the ground floor and then the, the next move of a Habermas is to be like, so let's resolve it. And you're like, that's <laughs> not it. That's not it how, about, how about we don't do that though? Like, <laughs> but wait, I thought it was at the base. Like, yeah, but no. <laughs> it's like let's just keep it like let's see what happens let's be silly let's like let's do a silly one <laughs> like yeah, we can have a little conflict as a treat let's yeah a exactly <laughs> you've already um you've already partially answered this this question when you referred to like the transformations that go on in people that participate in solidarity uh solidarists or solidarity group formation sorry uh i guess the, i i wonder i'm curious like what I w- i'd love to hear more about what your responses are to the some like pragmatic ad- objections let's say like pra- or vaguely pragmatist objections that say listen um all this conflict is i can grant that it's all important in the ways that you think it's important and in fact it's constitutive of solidarity group formations but at a certain point like the effectivity of a group in the world relies on at a certain, I know maybe this wasn't the right word, but some homogeneity of will or unification of will. Uh, this was the classic problem in political philosophy. Like this is why Hobbes says, you know, like the sovereign actually embodies, like bears the person, and they, now they all have one will, like in the Commonwealth. The general, finally, the gen, yeah, exactly, yeah, the general will it tries to tries to resolve this problem in a certain way, but some way of trying to unify do you think it's possible to have a kind of mechanism of unification or the enforcement of one common aim one common will without mm. doing this total suppression of conflict thing which I, I agree is neither you know historically accurate nor desirable yeah i mean i think that like the really i'll make the problem more damning for you, right? Like, I think the real problem is something like revolutionary discipline or something like mm-hmm. that, right? And like, it's a version of the same question. That's what I had in to mind. Say, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I just didn't want to come for you. I um, <laughs> <laughs> we nice out here, but let's do the conflict. Let's go. Yeah, yeah and it's like, yeah. it's like, no, if you're going to come for me, like come for the throat, right? <laughs> it's a serious problem. And I think that at least for the book, this is where my own like anarchist sympathies get in the way of actually telling people what I think they should do, hmm. right? And for me, the result of that is like, well, yeah, eventually you are going to have to decide what to do. Right. And that might mean a lot of things for a solidarity group. Right. One of the groups that I talk about in the book, Bagel, Bay Area Gay Liberation, they just kicked a bunch of people out. (laughs) You know, they're like, look, if you support the U.S. military doing whatever it's doing in Vietnam, you got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're not interested. No, thanks. Find somewhere else to organize for gays in the military. It's not here. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And there is a way in which like that is a kind of authoritarian move when you start kicking people out of an organization because of an ideological conflict you're not necessarily doing something democratic hmm. right yeah. and that is really disconcerting <laughs> it, i find it disconcerting and i think we should take really seriously when we have to make those kinds of judgments but we also live in a deeply bad world that is going to force our hand to make these kinds of judgments over and over and over. And I think that at the very least, what we can do is not make them in a snap way, right? Not make them too quickly. We can actually like have a conflict that sort of simmers for a kind of a long time and act around the disagreement, right? So we can act around the disagreement. So instead of like, okay, well, let's just put that on the back burner. Let's do the things we already organically agree on instead of the stuff Mm. that we don't. And then eventually it's entirely possible that just like, these are not things that are meant to live forever. Like a solidarity group isn't meant Mm. to be a state. It's not permanent. It's trying to do something. And if the things it's trying to do can't be accomplished by it in its current form, reform it again, right? There's no territory. There's no boundary. It's it's a free association. And like 
on the one hand, that imposes incredible fucking burdens on us because we have to make it all up from scratch. And that's where all the conflicts come from. Mm -hmm. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, there's a real deep liberation in that. Like, actually, we can just start it over. (laughs) And so, like, maybe we should. Yeah, I like that. And it's like, yeah, you've talked at one point about Adorno's negative dialectics and not being, like, reflexively hostile to distance. Sorry, distance. To difference. (laughs) Um, Distance. I mean, you know, not only, like, distance, I'm a traveler. Don't get too close. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we're all on Zoom. (laughs) Exactly. Stay away. Hostility to proximity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, because I think there is... Yeah, there is a, certainly a line to be drawn. But if you go too far in this revolutionary discipline direction, then you just end up in, and and you end up with an equally perilous risk of being ineffectual, <laughs> which is that you're just doing purges all the time, and now you're only ever back down to like the purest set of believers, which is also not. I, I got to uh, say, hot take. I don't think purges, uh, constant purges, are the the best, most effective political <laughs> yeah, way to yeah, go yeah, exactly. on record. Yeah, no, yeah. So now y'all can't come after me. <laughs> At the limit, we yeah. just end up with like each individual Trotskyite refusing to be in <laughs> anything other than their own group. Just an archipelago of Trotskyites. Yeah. Of, of individual be, groups be with one Trotsky member. Be inside you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I think it's helpful for navigating those two, yeah, those two equally problematic, I think, um, approaches. But yeah, that's all I was trying to say. What's interesting is, you know, following uh, on Owen say it's helpful. And the stranger, there was a moment when I was listening to respond to Owen's question where I kind of had an oh shit moment of like, oh, oh my God, this is actually doesn't admit of easy answers. Because I think yeah. sometimes when I hear people talk about, you know, solidarity. So here are the, the two bandwidths I see of the easy answer. So, you know, there's the the realist leftist who is just like, you don't have to like the people you're organizing with. I don't care if they're racist, they're sexist, they're homophobic, you know, mm-hmm. put on <laughs> your big boy pants, deal with it. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, <laughs> I like that energy, I guess, but that doesn't actually seem to be very realistic. Or there's the, I'm not going to be with anybody who is different than me. You can't make me share the space, which is also technically true, but seems like if a solidarity group is meant to deal with a conflict during society, you can't really go there. And so what I thought was really interesting is you're showing that, you know, if we keep trying to bracket out conflict, we miss the, the constitutive messiness of solidarity groups, that there aren't hard set and fast rules of, you know, how to keep a group formation together. And perhaps the thing to remember is that you know, group formations like these, as, as you're saying, aren't necessarily meant to be permanent. They mm-hmm. arise for a particular reason, and they're not an end in, them, in and of themselves. And so, you know, I guess I have two questions. One, you know, you keep using the language of, you know, we should take seriously, you know, this role of conflict. I'd like to say a little bit more about what you mean by take seriously. Part, partially what I'm thinking is it wouldn't be so easy to say things like chin up, you know, whatever, if they're racist or whatnot, just deal with it because we have a world to win or something like that. And also the easy solution if I'm not dealing with that. But I also wonder how you would respond with, you know, let me put on my liberal hat. The liberal enters in the chat and says, well, my political <laughs> philosophy is actually well-equipped. Everyone gets to decide what their version of the good life is. We understand that conflict is, you know, basic to society. And so the best we can do is preserve everyone the space to make their own decisions. Why, why aren't you joining me, uh, you know, on, on the, this side of the barricades of let's just learn to live and let live? Yeah, I mean, I think that these are like two sides, right? On the one hand, you have this like weirdly radically collectivist version, right? Put your own problems to the side, right? Put your own woundedness to the side Mm -hmm. in order to advance a common cause. And on the other, it's like, okay, put the common cause aside in order to advance your own woundedness. Yeah. Yeah. You said yeah. it better than I did. That was really That's good. well put. Yeah. Thank that's you. so well put. I, well, I mean, that's what they're doing though, right? And both of those to me are just so deeply unsatisfying. Right. And I think that the way that you put it, well, that like actually this does not admit of an easy answer, I think is right. How long you should work with someone who is intransigent in advancing or holding a belief that like is contains animus toward you that's got to be like a personal decision mm-hmm. 
But it mm-hmm. also simply can't be the case. Like I see people say this kind of stuff where they're like, look, you know, some deeply harmed and like beleaguered minority is such a small percentage of the population. We absolutely Mm. should not advance their cause Mm. as a central organizing feature. And it's like, you know, tactically that might be true, but internally to an organization, you also have to consider at the very least uh, that these people might not want to work with you by virtue of that. Right. Mm -hmm. If you look at them and say the things that are actually dominating you and and by dominating, I mean, like making it impossible for you to live in the world, Mm -hmm. forcing you to be put in a position of life or death. Those are not our concern. And it's like, well, when you tell people that you can't really be upset that they don't want to join your big collectivist group, because in fact, you've looked at them and said, we don't care. <laughs> like, this like, is not well, about uh, you. you yeah, know, exactly. Sacrifice yourself for, you know, my ideals. And we promise it'll be better for you on the other end. Yeah. And it's, and, and for me, it's like, okay, why would you expect that it would be? You won't make it better even internally right now. Right. That's just like, you have done nothing for me to think I should trust you on this matter. Why would I? In fact, when you had the option to stop perpetrating it, you said, just let me perpetrate it a little bit longer. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. In, in everybody's interest. Oh, you know, except yours, but yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Not, not that group. You're, but. you're not a part of everybody, so we cool. <laughs> right. And then, like, for me, I look at that and I think, like, what would it mean to integrate that conflict within an organization, right? Mm-hmm. To take it seriously, to take it on board would mean that the organization would have to transform in some way to include it, right? And I think as a matter of course, this is almost always not all that difficult to do, especially if everyone has like a relatively similar political alignment. It's it's really not that difficult to say like, oh, actually like gay rights are a labor issue. Yeah. Even though like a big group of people will sit around and be like, okay, like stop talking about queer shit. It's like, Okay, well, like a lot of that is employment discrimination. So. Yeah, you do you, you do a great job. In, no, you do a great job in the in the book of, of like pointing out how stupid the kind of binary choice is between like well, we're dealing with working class issues over here. Like, leave this other stuff about like queer stuff or race or whatever. Leave leave that aside. Like, we're doing this is you've got to speak to like you know the the more kind of basic needs of, of people. So we can't really focus on these other extraneous issues. And you do it by looking at the historical examples. And one of the examples you give is an uh, example in, um, in Canada that like the way that LGBTQ rights were entrenched in Canadian institutions was through decades of labor struggles in which those issues were included in, at, you know, as not as a kind of appendage, but were included in as some of the essential demands of, of uh, Canadian labor unions. And that served, as you put it, as a kind of foundational bedrock on which other on which like you know things like political rights like gay marriage or whatever which came later could be could be built on so i don't know if you could say a little bit more about just like yeah yeah, that's just one historical example you give but i'm i think it's an extremely important thing for people to hear right that that (laughs) that that that, that there is not it's a stupid false choice right that where you're being asked to choose between you know between like just pure working class struggle whatever that means and then all these other issues which are supposedly extraneous Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really appealing position because you get this kind of pure abstract figure that you can organize on behalf of Mm -hmm. in the working class. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And that actually gets you the ability to not deal with any of the stuff that makes that really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And like, this is one of, I, I think that this is one of the tendencies I have in my philosophy is to find what people have ignored because it's hard and like push really, really hard on it mm-hmm. and just say mm. like, yeah, like let's look at the really hard problem and see what pops out. And in part, that means that I almost never solve problems, <laughs> but I hope that I show that they're interesting. And this is one yeah. of them, right? Like labor unions have historically like done immigrant 
organizing. They have won like protections for immigrants. They have won protections for women, for people of color, for queer people. All of those ways of existing in the world are also indexed on a scale of economic domination. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it is totally like an abstract fiction to think, oh, we can organize the working class and not attend to the particularity of what it means to be working class, right? Mm -hmm. That it means to be an immigrant, that it means to be a queer person, that it means to be a black person. And that doesn't mean that unions can't be like really bad and like forces Mm -hmm. actually for domination internally. But one of the things that I I think is really interesting specifically about the Canadian case is like a lot of the people in the union were personally really homophobic and very upset. And it's like, die mad. Uh, yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, <laughs> but that's like what was also really interesting in, in, in what you were, you were doing there is you, you also you know, showed me uh, the line that I loved about the, the white supremacists. That, that came out wrong. I don't love the white supremacists. <laughs> I love the, the line. You got something to tell us? You're well? on it. <laughs> you know, I contain multitudes, you know, whatever. Okay. Is that, you know, it's not even that your argument is that, you know, the white supremacist has to change their internal values. So for the liberal listening, great. They can they can hold on to their, you know, rancid beliefs. But it's that they would have to change their strategies and tactics if they're going to be a part of this organization. So it is still not even the case that you're making the, the argument that, you know, labor organizing was, a, you know, primarily about, you know, changing hearts and minds. It was about, you know, how do we shape the social world that we are in? And so many of them could be homophobic, but at the end of the day, they found themselves participating in the process that was antithetical to the personal beliefs that they held. And I think that that speaks to something that can be, you know, really powerful about solidarity, not necessarily, you know, like we see in movies where, like, the racist discovers that black people are really human. But no, that, you know, the practices and calculations and strategies you engage in are transformed. And whatever your individual beliefs might be, well, it's hard for us to access those and and change them. And so I thought it was, like, really important that you're also saying... What's going on here with labor organizing, the reason why there's also internal conflict is it's not just about wages and economic issues. It was about modeling social relations as a whole. And I think that also sometimes gets lost when, you know, whether people believe they're doing it or not. And, you know, I made a joke on Twitter about everyone says the average American, this wouldn't make sense. I'm like, who is this average American? Why is it that they happen to hold all of your beliefs? Like, you know, did you go to Peoria, Illinois? And you're like, we just need to talk to the average Joe. Like, where, where are they at? And so I thought that that was like a really important point that, you know, there's like a microcosmos going on here where it's not as if the world is bracketed out in solidarity organizations. So even labor, it's not just about economics, it's about social life as a whole. Yeah, and I think this like hits at something that I didn't address earlier, which is this like liberal individualist question, mm. right? It's like, actually, you know what? If you wanna keep being a homophobic in your heart of hearts, if you're disgusted by queer people, you can keep that. Like, I actually don't know that it matters that we get rid of that inside of someone if that person has collectively worked to win all of the rights, (laughs) Mm -hmm. freedoms, and protections for gay people. It's like, well, actually, like, you know, that actually doesn't seem that homophobic to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cool with those actions, actually. Yeah, (laughs) right. And so, like, your personal disgust in a lot of ways, you get to keep that if you want it. As a matter of fact, I think it is the case that often people will get worked out of those kinds of attitudes through... Uh, organizing with people who are different from them. Mm -hmm. Lots of them won't though. And having that as our goal is just fundamentally mistaking what the stakes are of political life. Like we're not actually going to get everyone to have the same exact beliefs I do. (laughs) And if we did... (laughs) Because <laughs> your, ta- your takes on Twitter never miss, so that would be utopia. <laughs> I was going to say, if world. we did, Twitter would be lit. Yeah. 
I mean, I think yeah. we can model. I, we can already model the better world in our little corner, right? I think that's right because if you look at the opposite case, it's not like it's preferable to have a well-to-do upper middle-class liberal who, in their brain, has all of the right views, but like yes, yeah. through covert and kind of shrouded means, basically agitates with other homeowners to like do anti-queer planning or to like they lobby their their aldermen for like anti-black and anti-queer like policies. Basically, that that is to me that person to me is that, that's at least as bad if not less preferable right than than mm. somebody who finds themselves working towards ends which are actually really beneficial to lgbtq people and working in solidarity with them and then still holding some private beliefs that are fucked up and you know um awful yeah i think that's right and i think the way that it would the the like perfect analogy would be how much all of these people are um organizing against like better policies for the unhoused mm-hmm. right like the unhoused mm-hmm. are as a class are often lots of queer people are unhoused mm-hmm. and so it's like yeah you may like see them holding hands with their partner and not internally feel disgust but you know when they try to set up a shelter on your block, yeah. you organize against it. Against and it, so yeah. in fact, right. you are deeply against the interests of this class yeah. of people insofar as you are organizing for your own like value of your house mm-hmm. rather than minimally decent living standards for uh, like the most beleaguered group of people in the United States, right? Like there, the un- like the situation of the unhoused in the United States is uh, abominable. Yeah, like you're not you're not disgusted by them, but you are fighting a coordinated social war against their like possibilities of living. Yeah, you're in solidarity <laughs> against them. You're in solidarity True. against them. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting with what you're doing with this notion of conflict. So you make very clear that there's internal conflict, um, intramural conflict, and then you know there's obviously um, external conflict. And so it also seems to me that what you're raising with this question is that you know with conflict, it also allows you to ask the question of you know so who am I really in solidarity with? Who am I really working with? Because, you know, on the inside, if you think, you know, I don't know, I'm in solidarity with queer people, I'm in solidarity with unhoused people, but you keep finding yourself on the side of the conflict that makes <laughs> their lives harder, mm-hmm. well, then that actually gives you a political description of where you are rather than, you know, a moral description of what your beliefs are. And I, I find a disconcerting when those get constantly mixed. And this, yeah. you know, even though the way that you do it, I kind and sometimes I feel the bottom drop. I'm like, oh, wow, there are no easy answers. But it does offer a different route to describing the world in a way that doesn't have to go the route of moralism. It goes the route of saying, let's look at what it is that you are doing because you know, in this society, you will find yourself in solidarity with particular groups. And so what side of the conflicts are you finding mm-hmm. yourself on? If I could add to that question too, I think one of the things, like a related idea that you pursue in a certain, and I think it's in the fourth chapter of the book, is you develop this critique of the idea that solidarity is spontaneous uh, mm. and insist instead that like it in fact is always organized in a matter of organization, which I think is, I think it's related to the point Will was just making. If you could like unpack that a little bit, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I I think that that's right. And I think that like, on the one hand, so d- directly to Will's question, one of the things that I get really concerned about politically is the f- way that guilt functions psychologically. Like, I'm very interested mm. in the psychic life of our politics, not in like a moral psychology way, but insofar as like we experience these things psychically and they involve our political locations and choices. And so for the person who finds themselves on the wrong side of the conflict and moralizes it, they just feel guilty. Like, They're not going to stop. <laughs> not, not guilty enough to stop, but they don't. It's not easy. Yeah, Yeah, it is, right? And so then they might start doing stuff like, you know, going on Twitter and confessing to working for a defense contract. (laughs) I was wondering (laughs) that's where we were going. Nice, nice. Instead of quitting their job, right? Their asses, yes. Yep. (laughs) And and it's, yeah, right? Quit, quit your You don't have to be doing this. And so for me, the question of this, like taking sides in a conflict is really to say, like there is not a neutral option 
here. And whatever you're doing is, it is affecting something in the world with other people who are doing that too. Right? Mm-hmm. And to the organization question, it's not obvious always that it's being organized right. and that you are joining into something that's already been organized, right? And so like one example I have of this in my mind is um, people give a lot of depictions of spontaneous acts of solidarity. The one that I think about a lot, there's this um, video of a group of people at a protest chasing a cop car back Mm -hmm. and they are in a line and they're just pushing the cops away. And you know that it's not obvious all of them are together. Like they, they sort of like run over ragtag to this like cop car and push the cop away. And so you look at that and you think that's spontaneous. And it's like, somebody helped those people see that they have power together. Mm -hmm. That didn't just come from nowhere because in fact, we are inundated every second of every day with you actually don't have power over this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for those people to see, we can do something together. They've already been agitated somehow. (laughs) Otherwise they're not pushing a cop away from a protest. Mm -hmm. They're being pushed by a cop from a protest. Yeah. The apparent spontaneity is like preceded by and subtended by an organization and like an education through organization that like creates the conditions for the possibility of that collective action every time. Always. Yes, Mm -hmm. always, right? I think the other example that I have in mind of this were the um, protests at airports when Trump did the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. It appeared Mm. like a bunch of people just started flooding airports. And it's like, actually, there are like thousands of immigration organizations that mobilized people. And when they did that, other people may have spontaneously joined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. But you don't just get 10,000 people at an <laughs> airport because a random person writes on Twitter, hey, y'all, let's go to the airport. <laughs> right. that, yeah. that would be the, the most extreme you know, theory of, I guess it's all just vibes. Someone just yeah. vibed out to the atmosphere <laughs> yeah. and thousands of people saw the bat signal and they're like, let's go. I, yeah. you know, what I also really enjoyed about what, what you were, um, what you're saying and what, what you're doing here is, you know, I, I want to ask you just one more question here about organization, because, you know, when I'm thinking about the Lockheed Martin thing, it started getting me to wonder, one, on your account, does conflict precede solidarity or does solidarity precede conflict? Because what I started thinking about here is we can find ourselves being organized even if that is not what we would individually decide to do. So, you know, the the one way I would think about like the way a version of liberalism would respond is that you should be able to be neutral about certain conflicts. And so, you know, the way that some people responding to this issue of your your job is just like, you know, well, we have no choice and, you know, as long as you're not like pro weapons manufacturing and death, then like you're good. But I think something that's almost deeply tragic in your view is that we can find ourselves, despite our, our best intentions, what we think that we are doing, find ourselves on the wrong side of the conflict. And that does not mean if we're being, you know, politically committed, you know, to a sort of realistic description, we can say, oh, well, that's an abstention right there. So that one doesn't count. And I think what's interesting is you're describing the conflict written society that we will find ourselves being organized and coordinated in groups, even if we don't always think that that's what's going on. And I think sometimes people try to get out of and say, well, if you don't know what's going on, then you're not being organized. And I don't think that that's you know, quite accurate on, on your view. So I guess my question is, you know, one, does solidarity precede conflict or conflict precede solidarity? And two, does it make sense to say something like we can find ourselves getting organized on the side of a conflict that maybe individually we would not choose? And that's where you get all of these sort of psychological manifestations of guilt and confession, et cetera. Yeah, I think that this happens a lot, that we get co-opted into conflict that we don't know we are necessarily a part of. And like, I think you can look at, there were recently, I think Bette Midler was one of them, said something on Twitter that was like pretty obviously read 
as transphobic and was participating in and furthering a like media machine of transphobia specifically against trans women. And it's not obvious to me that Bette Midler knew exactly what she was doing when she did that. Mm-hmm. And the problem with moralizing conceptions of solidarity is we need an answer to that question, right? Mm, nice. Because if it's involuntary, Bette Midler's off the hook. <laughs> and so like when we think about the morality of these kinds of questions, then we have to figure out, does someone knowingly further an agenda? Does someone knowingly harm someone else? Did they intend? Like all of these types of questions start to become really lively. And in fact, it deeply doesn't matter politically <laughs> because it, it does what it does, whether mm-hmm. she wants it to do it or not. Right. And so I think that like an easy way of saying it is that conflict can co-opt you into solidarity in ways that you may not want it to. Right. Because if there were no like structure of media transphobia, Bette Midler going on Twitter and being like, here's what I think a woman is would just her being like a kooky old lady. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be a random thing she said. Yeah. It's, it's just like it's just deeply weird at that point for like Matt Walsh to go around being like, what's a woman? It's like, OK, you're just like. <laughs> You're oh, just, like a weird little a guy. Real weird guy <laughs> thing to do. Oh, I love that weird little guy too. Weird little guy. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, that's not to say that Matt Walsh is being co-opted into a conflict, right? Oh no, he's but, quite oh. aware. Yeah, yeah I, 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 think, I think he knows active, where he's an active participant, <laughs> organizer. Well, he's the one. He's the one organizing it exactly, yes. right? Yes. And in some way, Bette Midler has been organized into oh, that good. side. Yeah. Yeah. Without yeah, her knowledge. Yeah. Right? yeah. And. The model that I take for this is uh, the mafia. (laughs) I don't talk about this in the book, Um, but like people act on behalf of like in the early 1900s, 20th century in the United States, uh, people acted on behalf of the mafia all the time without their knowledge. Right. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they didn't further the goal of the mafia. (laughs) Yeah. Politically, we should be really concerned about the fact that this is happening to us and we should be Mm. aware of it, right? And that's not to say you're always going to notice it. A lot of the times you won't. That is why, at least one reason why conflict is so important, that you can look at someone and say, hey, actually this thing that you take as a neutral statement or a neutral question actually deeply furthers this project that organizes for my harm politically this is re- this is so helpful because it takes us out of the language of like offense like oh i i did like whether you're offended or you meant to be offensive or not it doesn't that's not that's the moral register and i think it's the register yeah. we're constantly being taught to put like to to read things through uh mm-hmm. but in actual fact you can just sidestep the whole question of offense like what what's bad about what you're doing or what you're saying is that you're advancing along with others and you're cooperating with others to advance an agenda that is deeply harmful to me. It's not that I'm like, oh, th- this is emotionally, it's emotionally unsettling. I don't like, it. I don't like it. It's, oh, it might be that, and that's totally fair, obviously. But, but it's that the 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 problem, the political problem, is that you are whether you want to admit it or not on the other fucking team. <laughs> like you know, right. and so like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're not friends, and there's no, yeah. I, I just think that yeah, it's important to, and and it's not just that there's a kind of you know arbitrary conflict. There's an intractable conflict between yeah. my existence and what you are doing, whether you admit it or not. Yeah, in yeah. this way, like to to further this point, like it makes sense that you know, like I said, I like who you drag. You also drag Rawls, and like it makes sense. <laughs> that good Rawls though, dragging, yeah. Yeah, it it makes sense though, right? That like if you're trying to do quote ideal theory you're never going to get to a conception of solidarity that's minimally adequate. Because like in the ideal world we're imagining, what would justice look like in the ideal world? There's no conflict like this. There's none of that mm-hmm. like textured, weird structures of complicity and like unintentional involvement. You, wh- why would you imagine that into your ideal polity and then try to figure out how you'd navigate it, right? This is why you talk about like all of the actions that are undertaken by people in groups in solidarity as burdened, I think, right? Like yeah. This is, I think, what you mean by burdened action. Can you say a little more about what's going on with that notion? It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, look, think about it. 
nobody wants to be doing this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> thank God. Someone said it. Oh, I feel like I've been yeah. holding this in my chest for so long. Like, no, I'm not having a good time. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, they could, like, all of this human potential, all of this creative energy, all of this interest and investment and time and, like, emotional work and interpersonal work just to have a minimally decent life. No one wants to be doing that shit. I don't. It sucks. Like, <laughs> I'm so tired. So, like, and so in a lot of ways, we are put into these positions by the structure of a world which we have entered and now have to figure out how to make livable for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And so like, in the same way that these groups make our lives possible and make our lives livable and prefigure a future that could be less dominative, less constrained, part of the constraint of my life now is that I have to do this shit. <laughs> and, and like there's pleasure and there's joy in it. But that sure. pleasure and joy is burdened by the fact that it comes from a place of like a deeply damaged world a deeply damaged way of being alive that mm. fucking sucks <laughs> wrong life you know yeah right wrong it's not life not it's great <laughs> and it's definitely not something you would build if you were like writing a story mm. about a great world you wouldn't be like oh yeah all these people are so harmed and beleaguered and constrained that they have to spend their time. <laughs> yeah, they don't know when they'll fall into poverty. They don't know who's going to discriminate against them. They don't know what nation states are going to you know, invade their borders. Yeah, that wouldn't make it to an ideal theory. And that seems like that, that was a, a really sort of one, whether you meant it to or not, I'm organizing you into this, answer to my question about whether conflict precedes solidarity or vice versa. In some way, what you're saying is that the conflict is already in the objective yeah. texture of the world. World. And it's yeah. because of that conflict that solidarity will form. And of course, solidarity mm -hmm. groups will engage in further conflict, not just internally, but I loved how you said near the beginning, if solidarity groups aren't creating conflict, then that they're not doing what they're, they're doing. No solidarity yeah. groups like, yeah, we just want to get along with the way the world is now. <laughs> and sometimes like people talk about it that way. Like, yo, don't be alienating. Like, the world yeah. is alienating, though. Right. Like, you right. know, so there will be some conflict there. And so I really like that, that you're saying that, you know, it's burdened because the world is already conflictual. It's not as mm -hmm. if people popped up on the scene and they're just like, I just want to make a mess of things. <laughs> you know, in, in a perfect life, we wouldn't be living this way. It wouldn't right. be called solidarity. It would be called something else. But it certainly wouldn't be something that's imposed upon us. I mean, I think it would just be called being friends. Oh, yeah. Hanging, yeah. Homies. You know? homies. Hanging being out with friends. your friends. Hanging out, having a book club. Yeah, <laughs> doing, doing stuff you like with your pals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, that sounds so that's good, really good. By the way, I, like, I got completely hung up on that idea in when you mentioned it in the book, in which I think Will brought up at the beginning that, like, yeah, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be democracy either. Like, I got completely <laughs> yeah. stuck on that. I, like, walked around for, like, and it, I walked around all morning being like, man, I wish we didn't have to have democracy. Oh. <laughs> but to be clear, you're not anti-democracy. You're just saying no, in this that world, democracy is, you know, an effect of a burdened and con conflict-ridden world. You just want to make sure the audience doesn't think Gil's, like, some crypto authoritarian, <laughs> which you've already been accused just, of once. Look, I've been I'm accused of many things. interference for my boy, because this is what solidarity looks <laughs> like even oh, if yeah. i have to conflict with what he is saying <laughs> can i ask one more thing i'm sorry i just i just wanted to ask you uh nathan about one last idea because it really struck me and it was i thought it was really like beautiful and interesting that you say in a couple of places that the aim of solidarity is infinite non-exclusion yeah infinite non-exclusion and i just think that's like a fascinating um mm -hmm. i don't know dynamic tendency uh movement uh, or maybe even an ideal. Um, and yeah. I just wanted to hear you speak a little bit about it because I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, I mean, I think that this speaks back to the this question about like revolutionary discipline and the composition of a solidarity group and like what we're really trying to do here. I think that the, the best example I can give of this idea, it, it is a kind of regulative ideal. It's a, an unattainable in structure way 
of thinking about what a good world would be. Because every time you generate some kind of inclusion, you're also generating some kind of exclusion. And so when we think about what would a non-exclusive world be, right? The sort of model I give for it at one point is feminist organizing. The goal would be that patriarchs would participate in feminist organizing. And that's because you want them to stop being patriarchs. You want them to stop doing the things that they're doing, right? And so there is this kind of radical everyone Mm -hmm. on our side (laughs) Mm -hmm. that undergirds my interest here, even though often that comes out as like, kick them out, shut it down, (laughs) start it again. The purpose is not just to win some small goal. The purpose is to win it all. I want yeah. everything. I want the whole fucking world. Yes, let's and go. And you can't get that if you think about working together as a way of keeping the bad ones out. Nice. I want the bad ones in, and I want them to stop being fucking bad. You're <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think... That's just a wonderful note to, to end it on. I want the bad ones to stop being bad. That was, that was really great. <laughs> it's very uh, articulate. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just like gets at the truth, though. <laughs> well, that does it for us today. We once again like to thank Professor Nathan Duford for joining us. Nathan, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you online about anything you've got coming up? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter basically all the time at Rochelle HD. And I'll have some um, essays coming out. I'll have an essay coming out about um, gay sex pretty soon. <laughs> so stay tuned. Why so tentative? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, an, it's an argument about how men having sex with women is gay. Uh, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah! I mean, I'm psyched to read this. Yeah, I really need it. to see it. You've been tweeting about I think it. I've yeah. heard, I think I've heard Nick Fuentes say that. <laughs> yeah, it's about Nick Fuentes. Oh yes, uh, let's go. And like the semen retention guys. Oh yeah, those oh, are cool. Word. Those guys are cool. Those guys are so cool. Uh, yeah. Once again, never misses. Never yeah. misses. Never misses. Yeah, it really is true though. <laughs> yeah, getting into like how weird sex shit is actually like weird political shit right now. So um, you can find a lot of that on my Twitter. And um, yeah, if you're interested in my work, I always push it on my Twitter. So New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are... Evan Birchfield, Sean Michael Jones, Paul Kreider, Igor, Levin Kim, Felix, Scott Burnett, Third Pencil, Robin Clare, Coco Zhao, Franklin Ridgeway, Tom Kazel, AIG, Christopher Ranson, Travis McDermott, Don C. Rockmore, Adrian Liu, Brandon Istanez, Theodore Stone, and Aaron Kenny. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left to Fill, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, Nathan. Bye.